Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring a recording from our recent dinner with Roger Pilkey Jr., where he gave a lecture on the distinctions between climate science, climate media, and climate policy and how it matters for decision-making. Roger Pilkey Jr. has been a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder since 2001. He teaches and writes on a diverse range of policy and governance issues related to science, technology, the environment, innovation, and sports. Before joining the university, he was a scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. In 2006, Roger received the Eduard Bruckner Prize in Munich, Germany for outstanding achievement in interdisciplinary climate research. He also oversees a very popular substack, The Honest Broker, where he is experimenting with a new approach to research, writing, and public engagement. His most recent book is The Rightful Place of Science, Disasters and Climate Change, 2018. Others include Presidential Science Advisors, Reflections on Science, Policy and Politics, 2011, and his magnum opus, The Honest Broker, Making Sense of Science in Policy and Politics. The dinner was made possible with the generous support of the evening sponsor, Mancal Corporation, strategic sponsor, Synovus Energy, and table sponsors, the Braun Family Foundation, Ernst & Young, Westbrook Energy, Geologic Systems, Tamarack Valley Energy, and Shell Canada. If you would like to review Roger's slides, which are re- referred to in this lecture, please visit the page linked in the show notes. But before we get into that, let's have a quick discussion with CJAI fellow, and Energy Security Forum Manager, Joe Kalman, about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. What's going on, Joe? Uh, not much, Kelly, but, uh, you know, I'd like to recommend everybody listen to the full lecture from Roger Pilkey Jr. It was a great dinner and really interesting stuff that he's talking about there. Yeah, he's a, he's a bit of an outlier, you know, and uh, he's a v- very smart, very influential guy. You know, he's written in all three phases of the IPCC dictums that have come out since the early 2000s. He's a well-respected uh, realist, I would say, Joe. Would you not say he's, uh, he's a realist about climate issues? Certainly not a, anywhere near a climate denier, um, but his the, the you'll find the lecture very interesting. Sorry, we're getting off track. What's going on out there? Uh, first up, I'd like to talk about the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit happening this week and some pop- possible implications for Can- China-U.S. energy relations. On Wednesday, United States President Joe Biden and Chinese Paramount leader Xi Jinping met for talks meant to reduce conflicts over military buildups in the Indo-Pacific, uh, drug trafficking, and artificial intelligence. This is the first time that Xi Jinping has visited the United States since he enshrined, quote, Xi Jinping thought into his party's constitution and abolished term limits in 2017 and 2018, respectively. Xi returns to the United States in a, as a much more powerful political figure, albeit in a much weaker China. China's economic malaise, based on uncertainty around the property sector and low consumer spending, casts a cloud over China's ability to reshape the world in its image, especially when compared with the surprising robustness of the U.S. economy. On the other hand, despite the strong U.S. economy, the political situation for Xi's opponent, Joe Biden, is perilous. 
as American voters continue to give embattled former President Donald Trump a slight lead in the polls heading into election year 2024. I guess the question is, um, what does this mean about international energy? First of all, I'll say, I think I'll just continue to place my bet on the U.S. economy. That's the first thing I'd say. <laughs> and I think I'll go to my grave doing that. Hopefully that's like 30 years from now when I'm 100. Um it also brings up the discussion about COP28 in Dubai. You notice how they're both, everybody's positioning themselves for these four days of discussions or five or whatever they are when they're going to come away with a whole bunch of promises that they can't keep. But um, yeah, and that's the thing. What, how will this these meetings today, tomorrow, affect uh, climate commitments that are, that are going to be made in a month, right? Like it's yeah, uh, I, sorry, I think, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, these climate commitments just uh, for sure need to take into account the bilateral relationship between China and the United States. It's, it's hard for either country to be assured about what they have the freedom to do and what they have the freedom to commit to in terms of climate without more certainty about the future of the bilateral relationship. Exactly. The next thing you'd want to think about is Access to U.S. markets for Chinese solar panels and battery technologies, potentially loosening of Chinese component limits. Like, where does that go, Joe? You know, where we come to uh, things like solar panels, you know, there, there's uh, many uh, lobbyists for the American solar manufacturing industry who uh, would like more strict uh, interpretations of limits on uh, the import of Chinese solar panels and things like that. Uh, whereas utilities and such like that in the United States would like cheaper solar panels. So they'd like less restrictive limits. So there, there's, there's, uh, I feel like there's a lot going on there where it comes to U.S. industry. But the real elephant in the room is the risk of war. And how does U.S. political weakness and Taiwan's upcoming elections in January affect China's calculations thereof? And it, therefore, it's preparations for potential energy import disruptions, which would certainly happen, right, if there was a conflict. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm certainly a, more of a China hawk, so uh, that's uh, I, I worry. Well, that's I'm one thing you and I agree on, Joe. Sort of There's lots of stuff we don't agree on, but I think we would both be categorized as hawks about China. You better be aware. And, um, you know, when we talk about U.S. Uh, economic strength, of course, everybody like, you know, there's the saying, I think Warren Buffett said, uh, never bet against the U.S. economy. And I think that's true. But uh, the didn't I just is, say that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you said it, but, it, you know, uh, what is it? Great artists steal. But uh, the question of, you know, who is Xi Jinping really playing against here where it comes to, uh, you know, uh, uh, these negotiations at this summit? Is he playing against the U.S. economy or is he playing against the uh, discrete political ambitions of the people sitting across the table from him? So uh, that could be a source of complication if uh, Xi Jinping feels much more secure in his political role in China than, uh, you know, people in the United States may feel about their own positions. But that might be getting me into anti-democratic territory, which I'm, I sure, certainly would not consider myself to be anti-democratic. I'm just concerned about, you know, vulnerabilities. What's next, Joe? Uh, next up, let's get into tech resources and Canadian coal. So on Monday, Canadian mining champion Tech agreed to sell its coal business to a consortium led by commodities trader Glencore, alongside junior partners Nippon Steel and POSCO from Japan and South Korea, respectively. The sale costing the consortium around U.S. $8.9 billion in cash will result in a clean split between Tech's continuing base metals operations and its coal unit. 
This is unlike Tech's previous plan of spinning off the coal unit while using a special structure to continue harvesting cash from coal sales from Elk Valley Resources, which would contain all of its coal. Glencore, however, is used to controversy, unlike Tech. The company, which features heavily in The World for Sale, a book by Javier Blas about commodity traders, has several times been engulfed in scandal for engaging in corruption and bribery in developing countries. Uh, the final decision on whether this deal will go forward lies with the government of Canada, which will likely conduct a national security review to determine whether it will block the transaction. Earlier this year, when it seemed that Glencore would buy the entire of tech, the general sense was that the government of Canada would likely block the deal. However, considering that metallurgical coal is not a critical mineral on Canada's critical minerals list, and that Japanese and Korean companies rather than Chinese companies are involved, there's a smaller chance that this deal will be blocked. That is still not a zero chance it will be blocked, however. No, it's, there's soft, it could get stopped, but I don't mm -hmm. think it does. We should keep in mind that Glencore is not new to Canada. Glencore owns and operates several mines and processing units for copper and nickel, both of which are anticipated to feature heavily in Canada's energy transition plans. Some interesting features of this deal are the involvement of China and South Korea. Um, and it's, is this a growing role for East Asian partnerships that are involved in Canada that, you know, the, they, they need lots of coal in their steel making businesses and or power generation that's not changing. Um, and an interesting concept of metallurgical coal potentially being considered strategic by the current government. It is, but isn't that a little anti-climate? Like I, you know, it's really hypocritical, right? It just, it's like, it's your odd offshoring emissions now, right? Um, which they don't have any problem doing. Um, and what's the outlook for tech? Issues with, with overruns and mining costs, questions of bet on long-term demand for copper. Um, I, I, guess, I guess that the board of directors of tech have looked at their long-term strategy and, and decided that there's more future without the coal business. Um, for me, Joe, I worry about the people in the Elk River Valley and and that economy and, and uh, Glencore, they're a commodities, global commodities trader. And... Um, they aren't a custodian of a corporation that, that they've always had that reputation as being very, very, um, you know, and it's all, it's important that corporations drive to the profit, but uh, mm. tech was a long time company operating in that part of British Columbia. And I worry a bit about that, but that's just a, maybe uh, the soppy Kelly making a comment. But at the same time, I feel like Glencore is trying to, you know, maybe rehabilitate its corporate image, rehabilitate, you know, itself as a corporate citizen, especially now that it's a public company rather than its previous existence as a private company that was just owned by the traders. And I think that they have made a few commitments to uh, maintain investment and community ties in the region. But yeah, at the same time, you know, they're not as much of a Canadian champion, I suppose, as, as tech has historically been. Time will tell. What else you got? Uh, last up, I think we should quickly cover an interesting story which shows some of the complexity of energy infrastructure and supplies in the Middle East. So on Monday, Bloomberg reported that Israeli natural gas flows to Egypt have recovered significantly from cutoffs, which occurred as a result of Israel's war with Hamas. Specifically, Chevron's Tamar gas platform located nearby Israel's maritime boundary with Gaza 
was temporarily shuttered by the Israeli government after the Hamas attack on Israel due to concerns that attacks could be carried out on this platform. The Tamar gas field and the more recent Leviathan gas field provide the vast majority of Israel's supplies of natural gas. And this has allowed Israel and them coming online has allowed Israel to displace most of its coal-fired power fleet with gas over the last uh, 10 to 12 years. These fields have proven so extensive that Israel has begun export exporting this natural gas to its neighbors. Importantly, Israel has begun exporting pipeline natural gas to Egypt through the Arish Ashkelon pipeline, a project originally intended to bring Egyptian natural gas to Israel. And it sounds like the United States and Canada. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, the uh, discovery of new methods and new fields, you know, can very quickly change uh, trade relations and relationships in general between countries. Yeah, so now Israeli natural gas is being sent to Egypt to help firm up its own natural gas supplies and free up enough natural gas for export to Europe. Maintaining both uh, domestic gas supply, which limits blackouts, as well as LNG exports, which give Egypt a crucial source of foreign currency to repay loans, is top priority for Egyptian leaders. You know, this brings up the whole discussion of Eastern Mediterranean gas integration. Um, what would happen if Lebanon or Turkey were included, too? Like... Well, there was a recent deal, I believe this was in 2022, solidifying maritime borders between Israel and Lebanon. And this has a, many implications for the development of natural gas offshore. And uh, there have been discussions about, you know, building out offshore natural gas pipeline infrastructure to have kind of an integrated gas grid, in a sense, of these Eastern Mediterranean countries. And with that sort of integrated gas grid, it would make it much more difficult for any of these countries to, you know, have conflicts at all, interstate conflicts, because uh, there would just be these barriers where uh, you're essentially, you know, have a combined interest in this uh, resource and in maintaining stability in those relationships. You know, that's interesting, but I would worry a bit about um, non-state non actors and the infrastructure you're building, like think about Nord Stream 2 and it's yeah. it's a possibility this is why you you know you need to game some of these things out right like what are the what are the possibilities and probabilities joe i guarantee you that our listeners were not pre prepared today to talk about egypt and israel and the natural gas they were so i want good for you for dragging out these stories and uh, very interesting developments yeah for sure kelly not a problem at all and uh, to our listeners please uh, subscribe to our uh, energy security forum newsletter uh, we're currently doing a little bit of review process since it's been around two years since we came, first came out with it. Uh, and uh, we've gotten many different emails from uh, all sorts of people saying that, you know, they, they really enjoy keeping the newsletter going. Uh, so, uh, yeah, please subscribe and uh, let me know. You can always email me. My uh, email is public about this newsletter and about any ideas you have for uh, what you'd like it to look like going forward. Yeah, we're we're kind of unique in the in the space about what we do, and Joe does a lot of uh, yeoman service for the listener and the reader to drag up, you know, pull out these interesting stories. So please let us know what you think. But right now, let's switch over and talk to Roger Pilkey about climate and uh, climate science. All right, so you've had a couple of drinks and your belly's full, and you're thinking, you know, what I really want now is a professor with a PowerPoint. <laughs> 
what I'm going to do is uh, hopefully provoke some thinking, and, and I'm looking really looking forward to our discussion. Um, and I'm going to keep on time. So, so sit up straight, uh, shake the cobwebs out, because I'm going to go a little bit fast with some of these things. But um, I'm happy to share this full deck with anybody who, who wants it, who, who didn't get a, enough of an explanation about things. Um, let me also say uh, thanks to the Institute for bringing me and the sponsors. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, to come up to, to Canada. I've uh, been in Canada a lot, uh, obviously nearby in Boulder. Next time, make it a little warmer. <laughs> I, guess, I guess this weather is going to show up in my neighborhood on Saturday night. So, All right, before diving in, um, one thing to make clear. Um, climate change is real, it's serious, and it deserves urgent attention to both mitigation and adaptation. And if you want my full views, this is a wonderful book um, for that special someone in your life. Um, but I've come to see in, across my career that the importance of climate change is held up by many people as a reason for why we can abandon scientific integrity. And I'm gonna talk about that tonight. So, so I'm gonna talk about climate, but really what this talk is about is about scientific integrity, how we maintain it, how we use it in decision making. Reasonable people can disagree about policies, different directions that we wanna go, um, but none of us are gonna benefit if we can't take expertise and bring it to decision making to ground policy making um, in the best available knowledge. So uh, overall, climate science and policy have a narrative problem, and I'm going to define what that is. Um, here's where I'm going today. So a little bit of throat clearing before I really get going. I'm going to give you a couple examples of areas where I think scientific integrity has been compromised. Um, hurricanes, disasters, climate scenarios, and I'll end with just a very brief suggestion. It's like, all right, where do we go from here? All right, let me tell you a story. Ten years ago, I testified before the U.S. Senate. Um, I testify fairly regularly. Um, I talked about what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and U.S. National Climate Assessment said about extreme events. If you read the reports, it's actually different than if you read the newspapers. But it went viral. A professor giving testimony about, on YouTube, somebody posted it, and it had 400,000 views. Um, that brought some attention to me. Um, the White House, uh, John Holdren, the President Obama's science advisor, posted a six-page screed about me on the White House website. Um, that led to a congressional investigation of me. Um, in 2016, uh, you may recall, there was the WikiLeaks leak, uh, uh, release of emails of John Podesta uh, and found out that Tom Steyer had been funding an eight-year campaign to delegitimize my, my research. Um, in the cocktail hour later, I could tell you story after story. Um, but it's been an interesting journey for me. Um, so if you search my name on Google, you'll, you'll find uh, a, a devil-like character. Um, and for me, um, going through this process of the last 10 years of being um, yelled at by some people, investigated by Congress, by university not supporting me, um, I think I found my voice um, that I'm a tenured full professor, and I'm not going to get promoted any time, so why don't I call things like I see them, even if it doesn't make some people happy? Um, people ask me a lot, so, so climate change is important, um, it's a celebrated topic, why do I focus on misinformation from the climate community? Um, a lot of those folks who share my, my political views, remember, I'm a professor from Boulder, Colorado. Um, Shouldn't I focus on the bad guys? Isn't that what everybody does in my community? And, and the answer is yes, that's what everybody does. Um, just this week when I was preparing this presentation, I, I went on to Google Scholar, which lists all the academic papers published, and I searched climate deniers. There's 3,820 academic papers on climate deniers. 
Climate skeptics, 4,060. Um, there's plenty of attention paid to, to folks who are castigated in that manner. Um, and I've come to view that these, this calling of names, the characterizing of people, um, is, is a code word for I disagree with that person. So I'm going to try to remove them from the, the field of public discourse. So for me, most importantly, scientific integrity matters. So we can, we can discuss and debate various climate policies, um, but there's no negotiation over scientific integrity. Um, and so, so that's where I start um, in, in my talk tonight. Just a few more details. Um, I've gotten to know some of you. I know some of you from before. Um, I've been working on this topic for 30 years, which is kind of amazing. Uh, my first book was on hurricanes uh, with my father, who's now a retired uh, atmospheric scientist. Um, and I'm one of the few people in the world whose research is cited in all three working groups of the IPCC. So, so when I give talks, um, sometimes I'm characterized, well, he's, he's a contrarian or he's uh, outside the consensus. And I, I want you to know, I am the consensus. My work is cited in the IPCC, uh, and so I refuse that label that's, that's sometimes applied to me. All right, let's get into the meat of the presentation. Hurricanes. This is a graph showing uh, landfalling hurricanes in the United States uh, up to today. So it has one hurricane for this year. And the red line is what Excel thinks is the long-term trend. And you can see there's no increase in hurricanes overall. I showed this to my students, and they said, that can't be true. That can't be, I, I said, I had a student just the other day, they went on uh, Google during class, they have their, their uh, their computers open, and they said, well, I went to this environmental website, and it said hurricanes have been increasing. And I said, it's good that you're seeing that. So how would you, how would you know what's true and what's false and when you're being played? Um, this is official data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, and so, so for, with my students, how to get good information is really important. Here's Bill Nye, the science guy, on CNN with my graph. And someone wrote it, and it says, no increase in hurricane frequency. And again, you can see if there's any. He took a Sharpie, and he scratched out no increase and replaced it with increase. And so you can see that's my, my graph. So this is kind of the environment that we're in in having discussions about climate change. Hurricanes aren't complicated. They're big. When they hit, you know it. And there's only been a couple hundred um, in the United States over the last 120 years. This is not rocket science, and yet it's still contested. Here are those strongest hurricanes, major hurricanes. The most notable feature of this graph, you'll see if you look towards uh, the more recent period, is that big white space. There's a gap there. From 2005 to 2017, there were no major hurricanes that hit the United States. So if you became climate aware in the last 20 years, which many in the media have, certainly my students have, um, a lot of people who've come to advocacy, you would say, you know what, when I think back two decades ago, we didn't have hurricanes. And that would be true. And that's why we do science, because our lived experience is not a good substitute for looking at data and evidence. Um, you guys won't be able to see this, but this is a, a, a list of pr uh, U.S. hurricane landfalls by U.S. president. And it turns out the, the presidents who had the, the highest rates were uh, Taft and Trump. And the ones who had the lowest rates were Ford and Obama. So thank you, Obama. <laughs> All right, here's what Noah says. We conclude that the historical Atlantic hurricane data at this stage do not provide compelling evidence for a substantial greenhouse warming-induced century-scale increase in 
frequency of tropical storms, hurricanes or major hurricanes, or in the proportion of hurricanes that become major hurricanes. So if you're paying attention to the news just this week, all over the news, the, the, the proportion of hurricanes that become major hurricanes has increased. Well, not according to the science. So this is the, one of the challenges that I, that I try to emphasize is that there is good information out there. And if the media ignores it and in the political debates it's ignored, um, it's all of our responsibility to ferret out what's real. Um, you say, well, the Atlantic Basin, U.S. landfalls, that's just a small proportion, and that's absolutely true. This is from a colleague of mine named Ryan Maui, um, and on the top is all hurricanes, a 12-month moving average back to 1980, and on the bottom is the major hurricanes. Um, you probably don't need a Ph.D. in statistics to see, well, this is a noisy data set, but there's not any trend uh, in either metric. Go to the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's, it was 10,000 pages in three reports last time. Nobody reads it, but here's what it says. No trend in the frequency of USA landfall events. Atlantic hurricane activity. Still no consensus on the relative magnitude of human and natural influences on past changes in Atlantic hurricane. Global tropical cyclone activity. There is low confidence in most reported long-term trends in tropical cyclone frequency or intensity-based metrics. Again, it's there and it's routinely ignored in our discussions. So why do we see so much damage? Um, the answer is we, we see a lot of change. I mean, climate changes in various, but so too does society. So this is Miami Beach in 1926 and 2022. Um, obviously the same geo-coordinates, but very different places at these two points in time. This shows Tampa, Florida, and the orange shows how, the density of housing. And you see 1940 and 2020. This is where Hurricane Ian came through last year. Um, you can see, uh, and you can expect that in 2020 there'd be a lot more damage than in, in 1940. Um, we did a study where we asked, well, what if every hurricane season of the past occurred with today's level of development? Um, and here's the answer. This is a time series from 1900 uh, to last year showing how much damage would occur uh, from each hurricane season. And that red line is flat, just like the hurricane landfall, as, as we should expect. But look at that big spike, as you see, 1926. That's when a strong and large Category 4 storm hit that little lonely building on Miami Beach. Today, we expect that would be something like $300 billion, um, an enormous loss event. Um, so again, getting perspective. Climate change is important, but it's not the only thing. Is it possible that climate change may result in more hurricanes, more intense hurricanes, more rainfall, change where storms make landfall, change intensification rates? Um, of course. These are hypotheses that are out there in the scientific literature and people are studying it. One challenge we have is a very activist media will go out and take a hypothesis and turn it into a fact. Um, and so again, knowing what's what can be challenging. I won't, I won't dwell on these and, and you can take a look at them, but the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, if you go into its report, this is chapter 11 of the Working Group 1 report of the sixth assessment, um, has summarized where they think they have detected changes in extreme weather events and then attributed those changes to human causes, namely the emission of greenhouse gases. Um, the answer is yes for some phenomena. Heat waves, heavy precipitation, soil moisture uh, deficits, and fire weather. Fire weather is a combination of hot and dry. It's not fire itself. Where haven't they detected a signal? 
flooding, meteorological drought, hydrological drought, tropical cyclones, winter storms, thunderstorms, tornadoes, hail, lightning, and extreme winds. The next, and I, 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 I repeat, I put these uh, boring charts here because these are from the report, and I don't want, I don't want people uh, ever to accuse me of, of misrepresenting the report. So chapter 12 asks, well, when will we detect these signals? We, we think climate's changing. When will we see these signals? You can't read these little uh, phenomena here, but there's a whole long list of phenomena there. Um, where it's blue, they think that there's going to be increasing amounts, so that's heat waves um, and precipitation. Where it's orange, that's where they expect to detect a decrease, so winter storms, cold snaps. Where it's white, they don't expect till 2100 we'll be able to detect a, a change signal. And that's most phenomena, including tropical cyclones, floods, uh, and so on. All right, moving along. I'm going to talk about disasters now. Um, a dis so there's extreme weather is one thing. A disaster is when extreme weather event intersects with an exposed and vulnerable society. That's what leads to a disaster. If there's a big tropical cyclone out in the middle of the Pacific and it's stirring up fish, um, it's an extreme weather event, but it's not a disaster. But if, like we saw, an extreme hurricane hits Acapulco, that's a disaster. So let's first talk at, about global disasters. All right, just this week, Financial Times, Lloyd's of London. At a private event last month, one executive at the corporation that oversees the market told underwriters that it has not yet seen clear evidence that a warming climate is a major driver in loss claims. I was at that event, and that's what she said, and that's true. Um, for the reasons I just demonstrated. But, but the, the thing I want to point out here is a private event, Chatham House rule, behind closed doors. Um, and that's part of the challenge. Um, there was a concern, the tenor in the room, that you know, we can't be seen to be making this statement publicly because we'll be called climate deniers. Of course, the actuaries and risk modelers in reinsurance know this very well. Um, there's a big difference between what happens in their, their clunky models and what happens in marketing and when the CEO reports quarterly results. Um, again, part of the challenge. But how do we compare that with what uh, Antonio Guterres has said? The number of, of weather, climate, and water-related disasters has increased by a factor of five over the past 50 years. But wait, Lloyds of London said they don't see any signal, and factor of five seems like a big number. So, long story short, if you go to the data he used, it's from an organization in Belgium called CRED, uh, Center for Research on the Epidemiology of Disasters, and for decades they have said, don't look at our data and use it to say anything about the weather. Why? The f you see it in red here. What the figure is really showing is the evolution of the registration of nat natural disaster events over time. And then there's a paragraph that says, now that we have better means of communication. Um, we detect more disasters, put them in the database. Um, and importantly, now that there's international aid for disaster-affected communities, a lot of communities show up and say, hey, just had a disaster, put it in your database. So that big curve is an increase in reporting, not an increase in weather, but it gets spun that way. This is from Deborati Guhas up here, who uh, oversaw that database for the last 20 years. And she has expressed frustration. Um, even today, we have people quoting us saying the EMDAT database shows that disasters are increasing in an alarming way. It's not increasing in an alarming way. 
I think that's wishful thinking. We've said at our press conference that there's not been an increase. Nobody wants good news. So here's their data. I recently updated it, 2000 to 2022. Again, you see the red line. Um, the good news around the world is that, um, and it's an untold story, especially in poor countries, the world is doing much better with respect to disasters than it used to. Um, and it's, again, it's good news that is inconvenient, but it's one I think should be celebrated because the science and technological community deserves a lot of credit for these successes. All right, U.S. disasters. All right, so, so I was uh, affiliated with, with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, for 16 years. They're a fantastic science-based agency. Um, they operate the U.S. National Weather Service, which is responsible for saving countless lives in the U.S. But NOAA has become addicted to this thing called the billion-dollar disasters. You might have heard of it. Um, it's gone international now. And what they do is they count up the number of disasters that cause a billion dollars. And a little side note, NOAA also produces those estimates. Um, and there's a lot of disasters that are 1.0 billion. Um, and they put this out, and they put a press release out four times a year, and it gets picked up by advocacy groups. Look at this rise in billion-dollar disasters. Um, and then it shows up in the media. Climate change is causing more billion-dollar weather disasters. And again, the science doesn't support that at all. Um, and I've come to the conclusion nobody cares um, because it's very hard to get this information uh, the perspective that, oh, you know, we used to have one building on Miami Beach, now we have trillions of dollars of property. Um, again, climate change is real, extreme events are fluctuate and they may be increasing, but the factor that leads to disasters is what we choose to do on the ground. All right, the Federal Emergency Management Agency in the United States um, has this thing called the National Risk Index, nobody's ever heard of it, um, but they calculate how much we should expect in a normal year in terms of disaster losses. And the expectation in 2021 was 1 uh, $141 billion of disasters. It's because we've got a lot of wealth in the United States and there's a lot of extreme weather. That's 0.6% of GDP. If we take a look, this is North American weather-related disasters from Munich Re and Swissery, so it includes Canada. Most of these disaster costs, obviously, are in the United States. Um, the median is indeed 0.6% of GDP since 1990, but look at that slope. This is the exact opposite of the billion dollar disaster story. As the United States, North America has gotten wealthier, um, the proportion of that wealth that is damaged in disasters has gone down dramatically. We're actually doing better. This is a success story. If you talk to the normal person on the street, they will say disasters are getting worse, everything's going to hell, and it turns out the, the policy story here, the development story, is a positive one. Um, again, don't take it from me, take it from Noah. So 10 years ago, they wrote a paper on the billion dollar disasters, and they concluded it's difficult to attribute any part of the trends and losses to climate variations or change, especially in the case of billion dollar disasters, for exactly this reason. It's climate plus society and we ignore the society part. All right, All right. so this is where it gets real interesting. Those were, I, I used to think that disasters were the, the worst example of failures of scientific integrity um, in climate, and over the last six years or so, um, and in collaboration with two Canadians, Matt Burgess and Justin Ritchie, uh, Justin Ritchie's at UBC, Matt Burgess is on the facul faculty with me, 
um, at Colorado. We've done a lot of work on climate scenarios. And this is a big deal. I think um, you are all going to be hearing about the consequences of the story I'm going to tell you in the next couple years. All right, so since the beginning of the study of climate, um, it's been based on scenarios. We cannot predict the long-term future, especially something as complicated as the evolution of the global energy system. And as scenario planners do um, in, in the near term, there's uh, not very many possibilities, so the cone is narrow. And as you go further out in time, the cone of possibilities expands. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a whole bunch of graphs, but they're all cones that expand out into the future. And I'm going to explain why it's significant. Um, I'm not going to get into the details, but oh my goodness, this area is so full of jargon and technical details that it is almost impenetrable. And I think that's one reason why um, this issue has not gotten more attention, because there's not very many people in the world who know what every one of these acronyms mean. All right, so about 20 years ago, the climate science community said, you know, we need some scenarios, um, and they update scenarios every decade or so, which is an issue. We need some scenarios for the next generation of climate modeling and for the IPCC. And this is a graph with 1,184 scenarios. Every one of those lines is a scenario of emissions going out to 2100. Um, you can't easily study 1,184 scenarios. So, so what the community said is we're, we need to simplify. Let's get four. Let's get a real high one. Let's get a real low one. And let's get two in the middle. Because if we get just one in the middle, everybody's going to think that's, that's where we're headed. Um, and at that time, what happened was the highest scenario, you see it here, it's called RCP 8.5, was identified as what's called a reference scenario. This is where we're headed in the absence of changing course. Uh, the RCP 2.6 at the very bottom was what today we call the Paris Accord target, um, stabilizing at two degrees or less. Now, underneath all these scenarios, and this is from a paper that Justin Ritchie at UBC did. Justin Ritchie is a young scholar. He's a Canadian national treasure, so look him up. Um, he's been kind of put off uh, by academia for his work. Um, underneath all of these scenarios is an assumption that the world is going to turn to coal. Coal is going to be the dominant energy source of the 21st century. There's, there's reasons why that decision was made. Um, so let me ask you a question. This is a group of energy experts. Um, and they say, don't ever ask a question in a talk where you don't know the answer, but I don't know the answer. Will the world build 30,000 plus new coal power plants by 2100? Who, who says yes? Raise your hand high so I can count you up. One, two, one and a half. All right. So if you think that's true, then this is the scenario for you because that's what these scenarios use. These are the most commonly used scenarios in climate research and policy. Um, the Canadian government, the U.S. government, the Indian government, uh, all rely on what's called RCP 8.5. In fact, it's, it's, it's pervasive throughout policy and planning. Um, the world is not currently deploying one coal power plant a day, so we're falling behind this if we're headed in that direction. Um, it's unlikely it's going to do that. It's okay, scenarios go out of date. What happens when they go out of date? We update them, but apparently not in climate science, not yet at least. Um, the IEA came out yesterday with its um, 
with its new scenarios. And, and I want to focus on stated policies, not their projection of net zero, which I know has um, been much discussed e even here in Alberta. Um, but here's what they think coal's going to do. And they're, they're not alone. There's, there's uh, an expectation that coal um, will soon peak and, and go around. Certainly not go increase by a factor of eight. All right, so let's go back. So I'm not going to go into any of the details of our research or the research of others, but where we're at in 2023. These scenarios are implausible. They're, impl they're already implausible. They have assumptions about GDP, about carbon intensity of energy, um, and so on that are just already out of date. And we have these lower ends that are plausible. Um, and it's not just me telling you this. If you go to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, they publish their annual updates in advance of the COP meeting. And um, in their most recent update, they showed a trajectory out to 2030 where the world is undershooting this RCP 4.5. In fact, in, a, in, a, in an upcoming slide, I'll show you um, a figure that it's, there's a broad consensus among experts on this point now. It's not a prediction. It's based on everything we know about today this is where we think we're headed. That might change. But the world of policy and research continues to focus on RCP 8.5. All right, so this figure shows uh, recent studies. Um, this was compiled by a scientist named Zeke Hausfather. Um, and what they project for temperature changes out to uh, 2100 um, with different sets of assumptions. Our, our most recent effort here, I highlighted there. Um, but the, the center of gravity of projections is now between two and three degrees Celsius by 2100. And again, RCP 8.5 is up at the five degree level or higher. I'm happy to say here's what the IEA came out with uh, this week, 2.4. Um, it goes right through the middle of ours, so I, we're, we're still pretty current. Um, but there's a pretty strong consensus out there. But as the, as the real world has become less extreme in terms of projected emissions, the scientific community has increasingly relied on the most extreme scenario. So this is the proportion of mentions of the most extreme scenario in the recent IPCC reports. Um, the working group one, physical science, and working group two, which is impact. Um, so over about a decade, we're increasingly relying on the most extreme scenario. If you meet, I, I have a little, it's like a little parlor game I do, and I put it out on Twitter. You read a story in the newspaper, by 2100, this, that, or the other thing will happen. So I go to the paper, I pull it up, and I read it, and I say, all right, what scenario are they using? I'm willing to give people like 10 to 1 odds that the scenario, maybe 50 to 1 odds, is going to be RCP 8.5. And this is just some headlines I pulled up uh, over a week. In 2023, RCP 8.5 remains the most used scenario in research. 20 studies every day are being published using this scenario. So why is that? The reason is, if you do a study with RCP 8.5, massive amounts of emissions to 2100, you're going to get big effects. You can publish that in a prominent journal. Your university will put out a press release on it. You might even get into the New York Times because these very extreme scenarios uh, are notable. Um, now, scientists, and there are legitimate reasons for using extreme scenarios in research. Um, it, usually, it's what we call exploratory research, 
um, not projective research. Um, scientists tell me, well, if we want to separate the signal of forced climate change from the noise of internal climate variability, we need these strong scenarios. And then the response is, yeah, but if you're a policymaker making decisions about the future, you're not interested in studying models. You want to know something about the real world we're going to be entering. All right. So where from here? So, so for scientists, admit there's a problem. Everyone in the climate community that works with scenarios knows everything I have told you. There was a meeting in uh, Reading, England in June this year where they started the process of developing the next generation of scenarios um, that will take us into the 2030s. Guess what? They lopped off the top of these extreme scenarios. They're not there anymore. Um, the world is going to look very different when we're comparing a RCP 4.5 world to an RCP 2.6 world. Um, I was saying today at lunch, um, it's much more difficult scientifically to see a signal of climate change. It's still there, climate change is important, than it is when you're comparing the most extreme to the least extreme. And my expectation is that means that our discussions of climate policy are going to have to move away from apocalyptic climate model projections to a much broader base of reasons why we might want to decarbonize faster. Energy security, energy economics, energy access among those. I think it's going to be a healthy transition. It's going to be a hard one for the scientific community. Um, we need to uphold and reward scientific integrity. Um, I, have, I cannot fathom why it is in 2023 when a paper shows up at a journal and it says, we used RCP 8.5 as a baseline scenario going forward. The reviewers don't say, put it with a red pen, nope. Go back, this is no longer current. Instead, this stuff still gets through. Um, and we have to beware and root out what's called noble cause corruption. Um, I hear a lot in my community. Um, you know what, if it advances the cause of climate action, what is a little exaggeration, is, is, that, a, is that a problem? Um, and that's not how we do science. You know, there's a, I, I'm baffled, and I, I'm increasingly talking about this. Um, if you think about how we do economic policymaking and use data around the world, um, governments, every government, has a very rigorous process and a professional staff for collecting economic data, for studying it, for giving it out to the world. So for climate change, which is one of the world's most discussed and important policy topics, we've decided to outsource scientific advice to volunteer academics around the world. Um, the IPCC is a group of volunteers. Nobody gets paid. They're self-selected. And um, for better or worse, the, the politics of many of the, not everybody, but many of the people in the IPCC process aren't particularly representative of the populations that they come from. For example, a recent study of IPCC authors found that 60% uh, of them uh, were opposed to economic growth. That's not a good, good, good way to organize a scientific assessment. So for decision makers, and I know there's a lot of decision makers in this room, um, you, the companies you're associated with, the regulations that you're, you're under, um, I guarantee you, you will find RCP 8.5 there. Um, and just because it's technical and turgid and full of jargon um, doesn't mean that, that there's an obligation for decision makers to understand the information they're using. There has to be a demand that scenarios be updated. 
Um, we update economic data daily. It's remarkable to me that in climate policy, we're using scenarios developed in the late 90s, early 2000s, in 2023. Um, IEA puts out a new scenario every year. Why can't the climate community do that? I have answers for that, but um, also recognize that the leading media and advocacy narratives are problematic. They're not problematic because, oh, climate change is a hoax or it's not real or we shouldn't deal with it. They're problematic because a lot of bad science has gotten mixed in with the good science. And it's really hard to tell the difference. Uh, and so, you know, part of this is the, the current media incentives that we have um, in the U.S. at least. A lot of uh, environmental reporting is funded by philanthropists, um, billionaires. Um, and sorting out what's what is really hard these days. And so my final comment is, is, you know, trust the scientific community, but verify. Um, because it's on important topics, um, and these are the ones where I spend my time, it's it, our institutions that produce science advice and scientific information aren't um, as strong as they should be. All right, I look forward to our conversation. Uh, somebody mentioned my Substack, The Honest Broker. Here it is. Um, come and join the conversation. I tell people I guarantee I'll write something that'll piss you off, but um, I write a lot about the, the climate stuff. So thank you for your attention, and I look forward to talking with you in a few minutes. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.